Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with Chris Connolly about his ambitious new tribute to Nico. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll talk about why Connolly is such a Nico fan and hear recent listener feedback. But first, we've lost another great artist, Burt Backrack. When it's true I don't want nobody, nobody Cause baby, it's you Baby, it's you That is the Shirelles, of course, with Baby, It's You, a song that's been covered countless times. Uh, A great song for for not only the Shirelles, but uh, the Beatles and many others. Uh, Subsequently, uh, it was written by Burt Backrack, who uh, died on February 8th at age 94. Some people may know Burt Backrack only from his cameo appearances in two Austin Powers movies. <laughs> he was the epitome of cool, right? 60s cool, yeah. swinging, uh, the swinging era of, uh, of music in the 60s. He sort of epitomized that glamorous uh, end of the pop spectrum back then. Got written off by a lot of folks as an easy-listening savant. Uh, He was uh, a brilliant melodist and arranger, uh, working primarily with Hal David as a lyricist. Uh, Backrack wrote most of the music. But I think, you know, some can claim that is true because of the environment at the time, the 60s, political music, the rise of rock and roll. Uh, Backrack didn't necessarily fit in with that template, but at the same time, those songs endure, you know, in the same way that great American songbook songs by Cole Porter endure. And I think part of the reason for that is look at the artists that have sung his songs or have performed his songs. Look into the jazz world, people like Sonny Rollins, Rasan Roland Kirk, Bill Evans. Look at the White Stripes covering him. Look at Bjork covering him. In addition to artists like Dusty Springfield and Dionne Warwick and Cilla Black, who uh, were contemporaries of him in the 60s singing those songs. He attracted the best musicians, the best singers, because of the complexity and the artistry in, in his melodies. I, I think you know, the, the point being that he was uh, writing stuff that was a cut above pop routine. Um, the chord changes, the tempo changes, um, the way he was able to combine major and minor keys in those chromatic melodies that he was writing, uh, very few singers could really negotiate that. And I'll use this as an example of what not to do. Elvis Costello was in over his head, Jim, <laughs> doing Burt Backrack songs. I was waiting for you the, to get the, there, The yeah. strain was so evident in the way he was performing those songs. You kind of 
got a renewed appreciation that, you know, Bacharach was writing songs that were quite a bit different from everybody else simply because they were more sophisticated. And the gift of somebody like Dionne Warwick was how she made it seem effortless, you know? She, mm-hmm. she kind of had a feel for those songs and a voice and a technical ability to sing those songs and, and bring out the beauty of, of those melodies, and not to mention Hell David's lyrics, where, you know, a, a lot of times David's lyrics sort of had a melancholy streak to them that the music in its beauty uh, belied, and, and uh, the tension that was inherent in, in the David lyrics versus the, the back rack melodies was just uh, what made those songs endure, made somebody like Sonny Rollins say, I want to I take on Alfie, you know, I want to play that song as a jazz piece. So, you know, we could go on about all the songs. I mean, he basically dominated the pop charts in the 60s, right up there with with, uh, the Beatles and other major hit makers of the day, and those songs still endure. But the song that I want to focus on is Dionne's version of uh, Don't Make Me Over. Dionne Warwick, Bert saw her as a backup singer with the Coasters, and he said, this woman has an incredible voice. I want to work with her. He and David worked with Dionne, about singing a song called Make It Easy On Yourself. She did a demo of that track. Then they gave it to Jerry Butler, who mm. had a huge hit with it. <laughs> Jerry Butler, Chicago's own. Dion was kind of pissed. He goes, yeah. don't make me over, you know? Yeah. And Hell David goes, that's a song. And he and Backrack worked on that song together. And I think it's one of the great early feminist anthems. When you th- hear Dion get to those lines about, accept me for what I am, the way she sings that, those lines is just chillingly great. It's like the best part of a great song. So Dion's performance there, basically her coming out party as a as a lead vocalist and one who endured over the decades. That was this is our first big hit, and Backrack and David were were right behind it. They said they got her. They said, okay, we're not going to try to make you over, Dion. We want to work with you because you're great. And here she is, uh, Bert Backrack on Hell David's "Don't Make Me Over" on Sound Opinions. Don't make me over. Make me over Now that you know How I adore you Don't pick on the things I say The things I do Just love me with all my faults The way that I love you Don't Make Me Over by Dionne Warwick In tribute to the songwriter Burt Bacharach, dead at the age of 94. Now we want to hear from you. Do you have a memory of Burt Bacharach's music? Leave us a voice message with your thoughts at soundopinions.org. She pulled the wire like the strings of a lyre Smooth as a pendulum or swinging through fire New York was filthy but Berlin had been devastated She fled the ocean to survive the abyss That's a little bit of the newest project from Chris Connolly, a name you might recognize from the Wax Tracks days and his work in groups like Ministry, Revco, Murder Incorporated, to name just a few. Uh, Based on just that part of his resume, you might be surprised to learn that Chris is a huge fan of Nico, 
the German singer best known for her co-billing with the Velvet Underground in their first record. That's absolutely true, Greg. But if you listen to his solo albums, you can definitely hear the influence Nico had on Chris Connolly. And on his latest project, uh, Super Ambitious, Nico is his subject, not just an influence. Eulogy to Krista, a tribute to the music and mystique of Nico. As I said, an epic project combines covers of Nico's songs as well as original tunes that Connolly wrote about her life. Uh... She was born Krista Fagan. You know, we were both blown away by this project, and when we spoke with uh, Connolly, you were not shy about your admiration, Jim. You know, Chris, I'll, I'll start by kissing your butt right up top. <laughs> I, I think this is an album that deserves to be bookended with Songs for Drella, the incredible Lou yeah. Reed, uh, yeah. John Cale tribute to Andy Warhol. Uh, you know, long overdue for tribute, uh, Nico, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Songs for Drella was quite a big influence in me doing this. Um, I have in recent years become more interested in writing songs about people or about situations than writing songs that come out of my own head, if you understand mm. what I'm saying. I like to have a story and a plot. And um, Songs for Drella was such a touching tribute to Warhol. Um, and I'd been so in, enamored of Nico for so long. I had recorded a song of hers uh, on a record and decided to keep going with it. Mm. And uh, then it became obvious to me. I, I've always loved her. I know most of her story. I've read all the books. Uh, why not write some songs about her life? It's a fascinating story. Mm hmm. Yeah, I love the way you intertwine songs by Nico uh, with uh, songs that tell her tale. I was thinking the whole time, wow, this could be a theater piece, you know. Uh, here's hoping. <laughs> I, I, I would it love that to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, tell us about the fascination with Nico. Obviously, she was co-billed with the Velvet Underground on the cover of their first album. And there, there have been misperceptions about her ever since. You know, Warhol fo foisted her on, on the Velvets, and, you know, Lou Reed has since debunked that, that story. You know? Yeah. But um, how did you become interested in her career? I think in 1980, I actually visited um, Chris Carter and Cozy Fanny Tutti from the band Throbbing Gristle, who were still a band at the time. And I was talking to them about the Velvet Underground and Cozy said, well, have you ever heard Nico's solo records? And I was in their living room and she put on Desert Shore. Mm. And I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Oh, I, if, if, if you've never listened to that album out there, listen to it. It's so <laughs> still so radical sounding to me. The instrumentation, her voice, the lyrics, everything about it was produced by John Cale. And uh, then shortly after that, she came to Edinburgh, Nico did, and played a concert 
I went to the concert and snuck in. I was 14 at the time. and uh, <laughs> Always a precocious. I know. Uh, <laughs> I snuck in. Uh, first of all, she didn't look like the cover of Chelsea Girl at all. She looked quite different, but she was still incredibly beautiful, uh, deadpan. And she sat down with her harmonium and played janitor of lunacy and songs like that. And then she was joined on stage by uh, a band uh, called the Cuban Heels, who were her backing band. And she played some Velvet Underground songs, etc. And uh, after the show, I went and stuck backstage and got her to sign my leather jacket and she, she, she smiled at me and touched my cheek and I've never washed it since. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I always go back to that uh, uh, piece of text that the pioneering critic Richard Goldstein wrote on the cover of the first Velvet Underground, inside cover, you know, that Nico sings like a cello waking up in the morning <laughs> in perfect ovals, right? That voice is captivating, isn't it, It Chris? is. It's absolutely captivating. And also... Just sonically, that music seems so timeless to me. It seems almost medieval uh, yeah. in, in a sense. The drones are like a hurdy-gurdy. Her main instrument is the harmonium. Which, I was going to ask about this. Yeah, yeah, How did you duplicate that? A lot of harmonium on the record, as there has to be. Well, did, did you get one, or is yeah, this a right synth here. patch? This is, this <laughs> oh, is it. All right. I bought, I bought and, and tell harmonium. people what it is. It's so, a primitive, weird thing. It is a strange instrument, and it's very popular in uh, the Indian culture. But mm -hmm. it was first developed, uh, I'll describe it to you. Mine is a portable wooden box. It's about the size of, size of a, you know, I don't know, it looks kind of like a puppy's coffin, not to be morbid. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, and it has bellows at the back. So you squeeze yeah. the air through and it goes through reeds and you play it like an organ. Uh, this one I have, you have to play with one hand because your other hand is squeezing. So for, for in Indian culture, it's great for meditation. However, mm. I believe that the harmonium was developed for uh, as a sort of portable church organ so that people mm. could have church in their living room mm. and they didn't need an organ. That's what I think it was developed for. So maybe colonialists dragged it over to in India to... Oh, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Indoctrinate circle people. circle of world influences. I know, yeah. I know. So when I started doing the album, yes, indeed, I had a synth patch that was an accordion synth patch, which sounded pretty <laughs> good to me. And then yeah. I was like, you know, no, I, I've got to get on eBay and buy a harmonium. And I did. And it <laughs> is the best thing I've ever bought. I love it so much. I mean, just... It actually helped me very much get in touch with her, in a sense, because I understood the rhythm of her voice and the yeah. rhythm of the air going through the instrument working in tandem. And uh, so it was a real pleasure for me to learn this instrument and, well, and you work know, with a harmonium when I saw Nico yeah. at CBGB, right? Whoa. Not much older than you were, <laughs> uh, you know, black shrouded figure on yeah. stage, all black, all black, little pale skin in the face hunched over the harmonium she was pumping the bellows with her foot yeah that's the fancy model yeah you need uh, one of those i brother. really do but you know <laughs> you know it's it's so funny to read uh if there, there's a book out by uh jennifer otter bickerdick about nico and we've since become friends but mm. it talks about how 
her harmonium was like like she'd use it as a cigarette ashtray and it was just yeah. ruined you know which hmm. uh i think john kale described it as a dragon with halitosis uh, <laughs> <laughs> which could also be a description of uh Nico. right right <laughs> um but yeah it's a beautiful instrument and it was really fun to work with record and everything the, dr- the drone of that harmonium and her voice had a sort of a drone and droning quality to it. Yeah. Really dovetailed really well with where Kale was coming from, from the avant-garde classical world. Yes. Uh, and the Velvets had that kind of central to their sound. It sounded very ancient in some ways and very yeah. modern in others. Yeah. Uh, so she sort of embodied that. So that feel, uh, I think that's always been innate in your music as well. Did you did you feel like that had to be an essential part of this this record sonically? I I, I did, but I also think that you're right. I mean, because I was listening to Nico before I ever made records, at the sort of rate that it becomes a part of your DNA almost. Mm. Um, and like I was saying, by getting the harmonium and singing with it, you find where your voice starts to drone and how your voice can really take off. If you listen to the album, there's subtleties. I actually found out recording it with a contact mic that it was picking up my voice at the same time. So I started using that. The voice and the instrument for Nico kind of became the same thing. I think she got lost in it. And I I only realized that when I was doing the same thing as she was doing. But then your your point is good when you think about John Cale's work with Lamont Young and some of these early uh, sun blindness music, these early 60s recordings Cale made with organ and viola. Yeah. It's drone. He was fascinated yeah. with drone. And she kind of brought drone to the table for herself because it was not Cale that introduced her to the harmonium. It was actually Jim Morrison uh who told her to buy a harmonium and uh mm-hmm. so kale and her were just like a match made in heaven if you, if you like in terms of his being able to relate to what she was doing and build around that his work on that first real solo nico album i guess uh the marble index uh yeah. his work on that really is so completely intuitively sympathetic to her sound you know, she cried when she heard the playback because she was so hum- happy that somebody mm-hmm. finally got what she was talking about. And Kale was that person her whole life. It matters more than it did before to see the East voyaging through. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Chris Connolly about Nico's interactions with Lou Reed and other hardships she faced in a fascinating life. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week we're talking with Chris Connolly about his tribute to Nico. We were just talking about her fulfilling relationship with John Cale. Not so much Lou Reed. No. Um, One of the most striking songs (laughs) on the album has uh, Reed... berating her yeah. in 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 just harsh way. I mean she'd come back to New York. I gather this is I think the song if I'm recalling right is is she's back in New York uh after the Velvet's days during the punk era. Lou is just harshing out on her. You know they look Greg and I, uh, no artist more formative to us as as critics than Lou Reed. We yeah. love the canon. We love Lou Reed. Yeah. But it isn't said often enough, he could be a mean, monstrous yeah. man. Yeah. And you didn't hesitate 
from that. You know, first Andy Warhol early in the record, when Reed is bristling a bit about having a lead singer. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, Lou, stop being a baby. <laughs> I love the, I love your Warhol there. <laughs> oh, Lou, you're being a baby. She's a goddess of a lady. And she'll lift your band from avant-garde to fame. Hey, Andy. And then the voice of Lou. What was your thinking? I mean, so many people have gotten sanctimonious about Lou Reed and not are hesitant now to say he could be a mean man. Yeah. You weren't. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, there was a few decisions I made with this record in terms of honesty. And I think that Lou Reed actually in his canon has acknowledged that about himself and admitted to being uh, mean like that in certain songs and has mm-hmm. quite kind of apologized through song. Uh, the the event that happened was in 75 when Lou Reed invited her over. He invited her to New York to make an album. He was going on about how she was a very important artist and she was penniless and thrilled. Got mm. flown over from Paris, where she was living at the time, to make an album of her music with Lou Reed producing. And as soon as she got there, pretty much, he was just horrible to her. They were both uh, using drugs at the time, and he used that to torture her and um, threw her out, threw her out of his apartment on uh, 52nd Street. Mm. And... um, a friend of Lou's came over and found her literally sitting outside with nowhere to go. Why did I bring you to New York? A strung out parody that sits in the corner. I'll call the shots, are you on a mountain? Nothing. I wrote Berlin and Transformer. I've read about it in many of the Lou Reed books I've, I, I, I've read and it always comes up and it's always bothered me just how horrible he was to her um it it was it was just cruelty and uh i'm not letting him off the hook i love him to death but he's not getting off with this one yeah no i admire that and your fondness for him you do a mean lou reed i got this six or seven times over the years of interview that's the stupidest question i've ever been asked (laughs) (laughs) thank you well you know in in kind of add some context to this because i've done a lot of reporting on this myself over the years, is that she was often painted as this waifish victim when, in fact, she could dish it out pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I know for a fact that she she and Lou were, early on, were a couple. Right. And she broke up with him and said some really nasty stuff to him back yeah. in the 60s, which I have a feeling probably was never really forgotten. Yeah. And given how both of them were impaired... You yeah. know, impairing themselves yeah. with drugs. Yeah. God, you know, it just, it's going to get ugly. It's yeah. going to get ugly, yeah. on, you know. Well, that other book that's a great book, um, you know, You Were Beautiful and You Were Alone is, yeah. is a fine, fine book, but but The End by James Young, who yes. toured with her. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I, I don't think, Chris, either of us, any of the three of us would have wanted to, like, you know, be backing up Nico. No, no. Um, <laughs> it would have been a tough, but I, you know, I want to talk about a little, some, you know, some of the stuff that you wrote, because I'm interested in the, in your choice of the, the songs that you chose to record mm. of hers that she either wrote or recorded originally. 
but Ripcord Ripcord um, yeah. is obviously talking about a very uh, tragic moment yeah. early in her life, right? Don't try to push me on over The secretary said to the soldier I got a fight in me Although I'm just 15 My blood just runs hot when I'm colder You have no rights, you're a German Could you talk a little bit about what, why you wanted to write about that particular part of her life? Um, I, I chose that as a starting point. Um, and it was, you know, it's, it's a song I wrote maybe halfway through the writing process. And it was one of these things about her life that I couldn't ignore. And I'd read about it many, many times. And it's always this alleged attack on her. She was allegedly attacked uh, and sexually assaulted by an American uh, serviceman while she was working as a uh, a secretary or an office uh, office assistant for the U.S. Army in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a teenager. Which is where she grew up. Yeah, exactly. And she was a teenager. She was fifteen at the time. And um, you know, I'm very. I'm getting really tired of uh, women being allegedly assaulted and the the alleged predators getting away with it. And I wanted to make a statement out of that song. Um, There's no documentation to back it up. And people have said, well, no one ever reported, you know, and apparently the soldier was caught and court-martialed and executed. There's Mm. no paperwork to back it up, but I still choose to believe this story. And I wanted to start with this story because it was so emphatic and I wasn't going to walk around that. Um, And, you know, there are, terrible tales of how uh, Russian soldiers and American soldiers behaved to German civilians right in the wake of World War II. It's a horror story. And um, I wanted to acknowledge that because it damaged her so much. Mm. And many things damaged Nico. Uh, The rejection of uh, her son uh, by her son's uh, father, Alain Delon, damaged her he was she was so in love with him and he just ran away and ignored it this was all at the beginning of her career and it set the path for her life and i remember in the 80s um people making fun of her for being just this stupid old junkie and it always got my hackles up because she probably didn't choose to be a junkie. You know, she probably was trying to cover up so much pain uh, Mm. that she carried like baggage her whole life and she was impoverished her whole life. She didn't want to be a model. Um, She had far more to say than that. And being a model sucks, you know, Uh, being a slave to your body like that. So she kind of went the other way. And um, I think the beginning of this whole journey was World War II and also the song Ripcord, Ripcord, which uh, details this sexual assault. Well, that's an incredible song. Um, One of the songs you chose to cover that she did, uh, Eulogy to Lenny Bruce, which to me is, it sort of brings it full circle in a way because it's Nico covering a song by Tim Harden about another tragic figure, Lenny Bruce. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a, 
interesting yeah. circle there, isn't it? She, yeah. I think she could relate to, uh, really, really well to what Lenny Bruce was yes was going through. Yeah, uh, and very topical at that time as well. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that's definitely a high point of Chelsea Girl, the album for me. Um, I think it's a beautifully sung song and a beautifully arranged song. And she really, she brought some emotion to the table with that. And to, she was angry. Me, to me, like people talk about how cold and emotionless she was. And well, just listen to Eulogy for Lenny Bruce if you think that, because I, I beg to differ. <laughs> I've lost a friend And I don't know why But never again Will we get together to die I think as, as people listen to this segment, if they're not familiar uh, with Nico or only know, you know, a handful of songs like These Days and the, and the first Velvets album, you know, Nico's a hard artist to love. You know, yeah. Lester Beggs had written that incredible uh, piece where uh, about the Marble Index, right? And, I, you know, it took me a long time listening to the Marble Index to begin to hear what he heard. Right. Not an easy listen. No, it's <laughs> Any of not. Nico's solo albums. It's it's not. I mean, the Mar- Marble Index is a very obtuse listen. And I love that, you know, back in the day, Elektra Records would like bankroll a record like that. I just love yeah. that. It's yeah. so great. Yeah. And her debut for Elektra was that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's still... A dense, dense record that still fascinates me to this day. It's still, I can't, it's just fascinating to me. Uh, well, that's that, that's the thing. You can listen to her for half a century and still discover new things. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, it's same with Desert Shore, of course, as well. Yeah. You know. Well, you you uh, you started this record by covering songs that she had re- she had recorded, yeah. right? Um, what was... What was the beginning point for you? What was the song that you first dove in and said, okay, maybe I'm, maybe this could be something bigger? Well, the first song I did isn't actually on the album. It's on a previous album. And I covered a song called You Forget to Answer from The End. I had covered that song for Bill Rieflin uh, as a gift um, while he was dying. And I, I sent it to him and he got it before he died. And he was really excited about it. You know, at that point, I didn't have a sort of compass. I was just like, I want to cover Nico songs. What am I going to do? And funnily enough, the first thing I did was uh, a song, which is the last song on the album called Hanging Gardens. And um, the reason for that was it was uh, a song that Bill Rieflin had wanted us to cover together at some point. Mm. You know, Mm. Bill was also a huge Nico fan and we never got around to doing it. So um, I decided to try it. And it's funny because it's possibly the most, it's one of the more difficult ones on the song, on the album to do. So I started off with a challenge and it, it, it took a little while, but I got it. And it's also 
funnily enough, one of the last songs that she ever did. In fact, I don't even think there's a studio recording of it. There's a, a it comes from a live album, which was her last live concert recorded at, at the Berlin um, Planetarium. Um, and it was a live sort of semi-improvised thing. So I, I just went for it with that and, and it worked out well. And obviously you're not, you're not going to sound like Nico when you sing these songs, but it seems like you stretch yourself as a vocalist as well. And I've already read some people mentioning that this is some of the greatest vocal performances you've ever given, you know, that, that you've, you've really kind of taken it to a new level. So how did you, as a singer, approach this, uh, this material? Well, um, you know, I said at the beginning of the interview that I was really interested in writing songs that had a narrative to them that already existed and also had characters that already existed. It's, seems easier for me to sort of be able to remove myself from myself. Embodiment of that emboldens me and uh, I can express myself without any kind of uh, in- inhibition. Uh, so mm-hmm. I've, I've been pushing my voice. I also record by myself. So I have plenty of time and plenty of alone time to work on it and try and get the best performance. Uh, not necessarily in recording a bit and then going in and chopping it up. I like to sing my vocals live, so I will practice and practice and try and get there. The other thing about it is I had to kind of think hard about these Nico songs because I'm not Nico and I had to find my way of articulating it. And some of these notes were harder to do. Uh, some of these notes were harder to hold. She could hold a note for a long time. Uh, and you know, become that drone again. Um, so I just I just worked at it and exercised my voice uh, organically until I had the performance. I understand what you're saying about almost as if you're an actor approaching yeah. a role. Mm. Yeah. The road that leads you to Vegas remains so free. Coming up, we wrap up our conversation with Chris Connolly by talking about the trap of addiction that Nico and many other artists struggle with. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking with musician Chris Connolly about his new tribute to Nico, which really is a fascinating introduction to this artist. Let's get back into the conversation. Nico, as you said earlier, was a product of a time and place where the German people, many of them who were just citizens, uh, Nico was a teenager, yeah. you know, or younger in World War II, you know, uh, become part of this, uh, one of the worst machines in uh, in the history of the world, yeah. uh, killing machines. Yeah. Um, you know, did she carry any of that? I mean, you know, there was a time, there was that weird period in the punk scene, uh, mid-70s, yeah. you know, people are, are using uh, Nazi imagery joey ramone uh you know who is jewish you know yeah. joseph hyman is singing you know tie your shoes and little nazis he's getting crap for that mm. um nico and anti-semitism it's it's an accusation been thrown at her at different times and racism as well the whole the whole nazi mindset you know i want to believe no uh but i also having read so deeply about her uh i know that she said some what may be termed anti-Semitic things to Lou Reed when she broke up with him. But I also read at the same time that the talk, the chatter amongst people at the factory was like that. It was 
a sense it was it was a sense of humor they had where they were outspoken mm. and all said stuff like that but i don't know that for sure um also the the racist part is uh there's actually uh when she was in new york in 76 i believe or no she came back to new york but prior to that in new york she'd thrown a glass at someone's face who was uh involved in the black panthers no one can confirm if she did it because she was a racist or she did it because she was in a really bad mood drunk and got into a fight so i don't know i would love to think that she wasn't um and I've never read anything in the many interviews I've I've read about her. Uh, she's never talked about that, you know. Well, and, you know, and it's fascinating. Um, she was obviously uh, fascinated by and drawn to Lenny Bruce, right? yeah. a Jewish comedian yeah. who often said things, the context of the times and the transgressive yeah. pushing of the envelope yeah. uh, are obscured by the passage of time. Yeah. But Bruce today, if you read uh, any any page from uh, any chosen monologue, you'd say this man's a raving anti-Semite. Yeah, I know. And it's the same. I mean, you can say the same for Lou Reed, you know, the first, yeah. the first track on side two of Street Hassle, I Want to Be yeah. Black, which is clearly influenced by Lenny Bruce, in my opinion. Right, but I right. don't believe for one second that Lou Reed is a racist at all. No. You know, I have a question just in general about your career. Mm. So uh, you have worked, uh, Chris, with some of the living on the edgiest musicians of all time, <laughs> if we put it that way. Yeah, you you have spent uh, a considerable amount of time and effort uh, brilliantly on this this two album set about Nico, who was her entire life a heroin addict. Yeah, uh, you know, irredeemable. You know, you 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 hang out with dark people, brother, yeah. and personify dark people. And yet, yeah. every time we've ever talked to you, you seem sane and healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think buried within that is the question: How are you still alive, Chris? <laughs> you know, well, maybe, just being in proximity right, to some I, of these people. You know, you, it yeah. seems like you were able to be in that group in that group of people and not be, in, you know, infected by it, whatever, whatever the right word might be. Yeah, I think that you know, I he, here's a funny thing. I mean, just to, for example, this morning uh, I was listening to the song "Temporary Thing" by Lou Reed. And I realized, I've known this before, and you know it as well, he's not singing about himself there. He's like a Raymond Chandler. He's, And so I like sort of feeling the vibe now. I'm older, I've had experience, and I've hung out with some dark people. Uh, so I'm going to write some. Uh, I'm going to write some dark stories. You know, I'm going to write some noir, but I don't want to live that life. And I know what that life's like. And when I read about Nico being on the road as a heroin addict, I just, for the record, have never been on the road as a heroin addict. But I've been on the road with people who are heroin addicts. It's their life. There's nothing else. It's miserable. It's so awful. And being around these people can be really, really quite hard. Well, yeah, the stories in the James Young book about yeah. you know trying to find a smack behind the Iron Curtain and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, and so I've I've been there. I've been on that vehicle and been with people who are trying to do that. And now, sort of in my later years. I've experienced it, I'm using it, and I'm using it as a sort of palette to 
you know, colour these characters that I'm singing about. You know, also, let's not forget, as a lifelong aficionado of that side of rock and roll, you know, there's this period of rock and roll which has, um, you know, David Live, Diamond Dogs, uh, Lou Reed as Rock and Roll Animal, uh, Nico's The End, and Kill City by Iggy Pop. That's what I call Heart of Darkness rock. It's like when it all just bottomed out. It was the end for these guys. They had to reinvent themselves. And I keep dipping into that. I'm still listening to Iggy Mm. Pop bootlegs. I'm still listening to the Johnny Thunders stuff from that era. And it's endlessly fascinating in a sort of way that I think um, the the film Velvet Goldmine was, where I'm a fan And I wrote this record, you know, partly because I am a fan of that era of rock and roll. I do not want to live that era of rock and Mm. roll at all, but I sure love reading about it and I sure love singing the songs. Yeah. Well, I want to add something to Chris on that um, because the flip side of that, um, I I got to know a musician named Paul Kay really well. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was, he wrote, many great songs and was completely unknown and underrecognized in his life. But he was a really smart guy and um, he became a heroin addict and it nearly killed him. And I said to him, why did you do that? Why did you do that to yourself? You had to know you're a smart guy. You've read all the books. You know, you know what this does to people. He goes, I, when I read that, you know, William Burroughs was, was a smack addict. And all these people that I admired so much were on this stuff, literally crawling through glass to get a fix. I had to find out what that stuff was. I, it was like his curiosity got the better of him, and yeah. he got hooked on it too. Yeah. For the same reason, it was just kind of like this, man, yeah. this stuff has this hold on their lives. How, what could it possibly, how good could it possibly be, you know? Right. Or bad, as the case may be. It's a weird kind of philosophy but in some ways i sort of understand that and i'm just curious because you were around it so much it's really hard not to fall in with that with that sort of scene i would imagine yeah yeah you know and i've definitely dabbled in many many things in my time but i wasn't interested in becoming um um a slave to anything i wasn't interested uh it was too it was too quick to see how people fell into a trap I saw people fall into the trap over days and I was not going to do that. And mm. I was also, let's not forget, I was with people in my band like Paul Barker and Bill Rieflin who had just absolutely no interest in any of that. And these were the people I hung out with. Mm. The the people who were abusing themselves were not were only primarily interested in doing that and uh, not doing fun stuff at all it wasn't it wasn't fun i re- it's funny i read another interview with uh kale recently when he was talking about lou reed's death and he was talking about making songs for drella and how the work of that album the work had been so fun neither of them were drinking or doing drugs they didn't want it they were just having a good time creating and for me that's always been there's always another album to hear. There's always another Bitches Brew or Laughing Stock or something where you're just like, "Ooh, this is this is creativity. It's it's the best drug mm-hmm. in the best drug in the world, you know." 
Yeah, no, I, you know, I got to see uh, Reed and Kale do uh, songs for Drella oh, wow. at St. Anne's wow. in Brooklyn a year before it went to BAM and had all the fancy production and everything, right? right? right. Uh, it was just the two of them on stage on the altar, right? Yeah. You know, and um, you could get a little glimpse of what that collaboration mm. had been like yeah. in 66, 65, uh, you know, as they traded vocals. Before yeah. the other stuff took over. Before ever, all the nonsense, yeah. right? <laughs> and, uh, and that's... Uh, that's the sort of love your your love for uh, Christopher Nico comes through on this record. I think you've created something really important here. Uh, Thank Chris. you, and uh, uh, I just I love it to pieces, Greg. Yeah, Thank I you. was blown away, Chris. I gotta say, it was an amazing piece of work. I go, you know, man, this this sounds like a lot, awful lot to bite off, and then I was like, <laughs> this is great. Thank well, you. Well, there was nothing to do for the last yeah, two right. and a half years. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Thank for you your, so much time it was fantastic yeah. is, it, is this thing on vinyl chris i'm afraid not if it was it'd be a triple album and i couldn't manage that <laughs> <laughs> couldn't manage that oh i want one for christmas man yeah <laughs> I That wraps up our chat with Chris Connolly on Nico. And as always, we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite song by Nico or by Chris Connolly? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. And that's what these listeners did, Greg. New messages. Hey guys, Charlie Garbaglio from Chicago, Illinois, Colin. Uh, I think a, a lot of really good video game music was talked about, but worth including is uh, Baba Yetu, composed by Christopher Ten from Sid Meier's Civilization IV. Um, it really is this expansive music that gets you ready to uh, you know, build a civilization that will stand the test of time. Um, and my girlfriend, Sarah Harmon, can attest to the fact that it's been my <laughs> wake-up alarm for the four years now um, that we've been dating. So thanks for the show. Uh, take care. As far as buried treasures, uh, I've got one out of the Bay Area, a band called Daywave that's been around for several years now and uh, just released a new album a few months ago called Past Life. It's kind of got that dream poppy feel, lots of great hooks. I think every song's a winner, and uh, I think it's worth checking out. Thanks. Greg and Jim. This is Kip in Philadelphia. I just caught up on your latest Buried Treasures episode. Uh, always one of my favorites that you do. I wanted to add uh, one of the Buried Treasures I've been listening to this year. It is an album called Devotional. 
and it's put out by The Lord and Petra Hayden. Uh, the Lord is Greg Anderson, who's been in a lot of heavy music stuff and runs Southern Lord uh, Records. Petra Hayden is the daughter of wonderful jazz bassist Charlie Hayden. She adds vocals, they're wordless vocals, and violin to this. Uh, there's a lot of drone-based stuff with Anderson's guitar, and it uh, really explores the forms of Indian devotional music. Um, it's really heavy, it's really powerful, uh, and I find it hypnotic. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Chris from Philadelphia, PA. And one of my favorite records this year was Squeeze by Sasami. And I loved it because I feel as though she reached down through a lot of traditional interpretations of music, especially pop music, down deep into the guts, and she turned it all inside out. Baby, Against my throat, but you're the one that wants to go, leaving me on the outside now. I love her voice, I love her vibe. I saw her live, she was fantastic. She's energetic, her cello playing was fantastic. I just loved everything she did on that record, and I feel like she really is going to be a future artist that is going to do really creative and different things. No more messages. Always great to hear from our listeners, Mr. Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to take an inside look at what makes Ticketmaster tick, for better or worse. Mostly worse, I would say. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I can't believe we've spent 30 years talking about Ticketmaster. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott.